and welcome to Insurance Tomorrow, a podcast brought to you by Alliance Insurance with me, Steph McGovern. Now, in this series, we look at what's happening in the world and how it might impact the insurance industry. We cover everything from underinsurance, fraud, financial literacy, business resilience, the skills shortage, and everything in between. If you want to listen back, you can get all of the episodes online. Today, we're talking about the need to be greener and in particular, how the insurance industry can drive the transition to net zero. Of course, the term net zero is used a lot now. It's thrown about everywhere, often without any explanation. So just to remind you, uh, the definition, it's all about taking out of the atmosphere as many greenhouse gas emissions as we put in. And there is lots of different ways you can do this. What we want to focus on today is looking at how the insurance industry can be part of this. With me to do that, we've got John Dudeney, who's in charge of Portfolio Data and Insights at Allianz. We've got uh, Dr. Anna Valero, who's Director of the Growth Programme at the Centre for Economic Performance at the LSC, and Joe Goddard, who's Director of Green and Good Consulting. Um, Thank you for joining me on this. It feels like everyone is talking about net zero at the moment. Um, Anna, can you just give us a flavour, your kind of summation of where you think we're at with net zero and how that journey is going? I mean, I know that's a massive question, but your summary of it. The UK has traditionally been a leader on net zero commitments and policy. And we were one of the first advanced economies to put this legal commitment to net zero by 2050 um, into law. So we have many policies in place to try and reduce emissions in different parts of the economy. We've done very well in terms of decarbonising our electricity supply. This next stage, however, involves much more action in areas that we haven't been doing so well. Really big challenges in decarbonisation of buildings and also surface transport. So while we have lots of policies and strategies in place... In fact, the Committee on Climate Change in their progress assessment report early in the year were quite concerned in terms of our ability to deliver against some of those ambitious targets. And really, this is a large scale transformation of the economy here and also internationally, which is required to become net zero, to decarbonise our activities And I would argue to still grow the economy, but in a sustainable way. And really fundamental to all of that is large scale investment and innovation. Yeah. And it's not something you can do on your own, is it? That's the key to all this. You know, we can talk about what the UK is doing, but it is so important what's happening internationally as well. But Joe, do you think businesses are taking it seriously enough? Yes, I think some are leading in this area and have been for a long time. What we're seeing now, though, is more and more people getting involved in their transition plans towards net zero. Anna quite rightly said we've been a leader in this country in this field for a long time, having announced our targets. But what we're turning towards now, both in business and in governments, are these transition plans towards net zero, which by that we mean setting out very clearly how we're going to reach these 2050 targets, both in terms of what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, and trying to work out how much cost is involved. And that's been driven by investors largely saying, we we need you to do this, but we need to have an idea of, of costs because it is a huge transformation project. 
for everybody and it will need financing and we need an idea of what that's going to cost um, so that we can do it in a measured way to continue that journey to growth as well. Looking at it from our perspective today in terms of the insurance industry, John, I guess there's two elements to this, you know, what the insurance industry can do themselves and then also how they can help clients in all of this too. But do you want to give us a flavour of what's happening at Allianz in terms of achieving this? Sure. Well, I think it's a nice transition from what Joe said there, which is this September, we've just released our transition plan um, out to 2030 and then beyond 2050, looking across the operational bits of the business, looking across the investment arm, looking across the insurance arm. I guess from today's perspective, we're probably most interested in the insurance side of it and how that's going to affect our broker partners that we work with and, and what they need to be thinking about. But it's certainly very early for us. And I think it's going to be a really interesting balance over the next couple of years of how we're used as carrot or stick as an insurer by regulators, government, new laws, regulations, policies that are coming in. And, you know, we'd like to be on the carrot end, but I think there is a fear that we might be on the stick end and that we're going to be used or forced is a strong word, but, you know, pushed to make these changes that may be a little bit too early for our customers and the customers might not quite be ready for that change. That's the balance at the moment that we're trying to take. Yeah, because um, Anna, you've, I know you've written quite a few reports in this area, haven't you? Um, you know, and and you, I know you argue in some of them that sometimes net zero policies are just being put into place without the thought being taken on how they're going to be achieved. Do you want to just elaborate in terms of what your what you've what conclusions you've made from that and why yeah so if we start with businesses um, businesses have been through lots of turmoil in recent years and continue to do so you know we've just had the bank of england their outlook is for zero growth next year interest rates are high we've been through an energy crisis there's more uncertainty so for businesses to make these transitions and find the money to make these investments you could say that sometimes a crisis can induce you to do that. For example, high energy prices could induce businesses to think, right, let's actually improve the, the energy efficiency of our factories, of our offices. Let's think about how we're using energy to try and be more resilient to future crises and cut costs now. So in some sense, there are some of those incentives there. But we need policies in place to address the many market failures that prevent businesses from making some of these changes. And there are lots of market failures. The most obvious one is the greenhouse gas externality, whereby people are not or markets are not internalising the price of carbon emissions. You know, that justifies the fact that we have climate policies in the first place. But there are many others as well. Information issues, businesses might not know what they need to do to be sustainable in their business operations. It's quite confusing. There are lots of new technologies out there. It's financing constraints, particularly given high interest rates, given the various crises we've been through. Maybe businesses want to make the changes, but they can't access the capital to do so. So there are many market failures that business-focused policies could overcome. We're seeing, say, in the United States, where there's a very large-scale subsidy program trying to get over some of those market failures. Um, in some sense, in the UK, we have more recourse to traditional environmental policies at the national level. But I think we should also be looking at whether there are more ways we can incentivize those investments. And then, of course, when we look at individuals or households, there are many barriers to people making some of the changes at home, which in turn will impact on the demand for all those businesses providing heat pumps or energy efficiency products, etc. What role then, Anna, do you see the insurance industry playing in this? 
Well, I mean, you can see, I think, to, to John's point, whether it's the carrot or a stick, perhaps offering better premiums for greener businesses, greener structures and projects, or similarly having requirements for access to certain deals. We're already seeing this growth in terms of green mortgages, for example. I think that's a really clear area where insurance and the finance sector in general can provide some of those incentives. Can you explain what a green mortgage is, just for people who don't know? It's basically offering mortgages at preferential rates where a property is going to be environmentally friendly, whether it's more energy efficient or there are actually many things in a house that you can do to be energy efficient over and above simply having insulated walls. Yeah, I know it's it's incredible how many different things there are. And, you know, from what all of you are, are saying, it's, it, you know, you're using this word transition because none of this is going to happen overnight. Um, but Joe, just moving on from what Anna was saying, what are your thoughts in terms of how the industry, insurance industry can be part of this then? I think Anna's touched on it, certainly, and I think it's really good to explain it in terms of carrot or stick, because actually what we're seeing is that the insurance industry can provide some opportunities for both businesses and householders to help them along their transition pathway by supporting them on lower insurance costs, for example, to be more energy efficient in in their offices, in their homes. Now, we know those two things are really important because real estate in this country is very poor in terms of its efficiency. And we know that that's a huge greenhouse gas sink, if you like, um, of uh, and something that we certainly need to change. That's one way that the insurance industry can help. And of course, we, we talk about insurance as being giving businesses that license to operate. So businesses need to continue to be insured to do business. So we've got to think about that in the future. Businesses have to think about a whole host of things there in terms of the products and the service that they offer and whether they continue to be insurable. They also have to think about their physical risks. Now, some of those businesses will be flooded, for example. They need to be able to continue to operate in the future. So they have to be climate resilient. And I think that's where insurance can help too. Yeah. And John, are these the conversations you guys are having in Alliance then quite regularly? We talk about and we're working on our, let's call it, suite of sustainable products. So how can we offer solutions to clients that don't just help them after the event, but are preventative as well? So with those retail customers, if they've got a basement and they're in a flood zone, how can we help? Can we put a pump in? Can you do all the stuff that you hear about, you know, in terms of one-way valves, all of that sort of thing? What preventative measures can we put in place as part of our product solutions to prevent rather than cure as a sort of step one? And then from there on, I mean, there's a whole host. We're talking about property insurance there. We've obviously got incentives in the electric vehicle space, or let's just call it green mobility because it might not be electric vehicles. So we're thinking about that across our whole suite, both commercially and personally at the moment, but it's very early days. Yeah, I guess the concern from people who are, you know, thinking about making these changes is one of cost more than anything. John, how are you thinking about that as well in terms of talking about incentives? But cost fundamentally is going to be the biggest concern at the moment for business, isn't it? 
And I think, you know, with our commercial hat on, that's one of the trickiest parts for us, which is actually green solutions can be more expensive for us as an insurer. We talk about having a green tax or trying to give incentives and cheaper premiums to customers, but actually that's potentially going to cost us as a company more. So that's the balance I'm talking about where we need to do the right things and we need to be pushing this forwards. We need to be an advocate for this. And that's a tricky balance. Yeah. Um, And what are your thoughts on that as well? I could see you nodding along there. Is there anything you want to add to that. Yeah, I think that's the key issue that actually a lot of net zero involves upfront costs, which I like to talk of often as investments, because these are things that make you more resilient over time and also clearly are helping to address the climate crisis. So an investment in that sense. But, you know, take the example of perhaps having much higher insurance claims because you haven't made a certain investment that would make your property more resilient. So it's these shorter term costs, but the longer term savings. The other parallel I would draw there is, you know, if if we hadn't seen this falling off in terms of our efforts decarbonising homes. um, So we saw basically in the early 2010s that our progress really stalled there. We would have entered the energy crisis in a better position and we wouldn't have seen such high bills for so many families that would struggle through that. Yeah, surely it it probably doesn't help when it feels like you know, we've, we heard recently about the government's kind of rowing back on some of the commitments to get to net zero, whether it's about, you know, diesel and petrol cars or how you heat your home. Similarly, we're seeing massive deals in the oil industry, which suggests that the oil companies very much think oil is where we'll still be getting a lot of our feel from. Do you think, Anna, that makes a difference then to how clients, brokers or whoever are looking at how they're going to be sustainable too? Because it feels quite negative around it at the moment. Yeah, I agree. I personally was very upset to see those announcements. I feel like that kind of high level narrative makes a big difference to the overall confidence in our journey to net zero, the commitment that businesses sense in terms of our direction of travel. We've had quite a lot of policy reversals in many areas, but one area that we've seen quite a lot of consensus has been net zero. And to see some of those things being diluted is concerning. Particularly because actually if if what we're worried about is, say, poorer households being able to afford changes, what we should be doing is thinking of the right ways to target support. Because in fact, if you make some of these requirements less stringent, it's going to be lots of those renters who will continue to see high energy bills because they haven't had the investments in energy efficiency or their landlords haven't made those investments for them. So actually... We've got to make sure that some of the narrative, which I think was correct, we need to think about how different parts of society might find it hard. But then what we need to do is not row back the commitment to net zero. It's more about make sure you have targeted support. Yeah, Joe. I I couldn't agree more. And I think what was so disappointing about that announcement was the sort of political nature of it, really. Um, And actually, it was it was sort of focused on, on households, but actually businesses were so were planning um, or trying to really plan in their transition again to net to net zero through the use of electric vehicles, and it's been it's been quite difficult for businesses to think. Hold on a second, we now have to look at our plans again. So that that was quite disappointing and confusing then for businesses who were sort of saying, yeah. "What else is going to change yeah. here?" But I think what is useful for businesses to remember. Um, And to the point around the cost of living crisis is that we don't have to do all of this today. We have to transition towards net zero. 
in 2050 by the very latest. Now we know that there are urgent issues that we have to tackle and doing things sooner rather than later is going to be better for everybody. We are also hearing um, from many um, government commentators that actually we know, and economic ec economists, that we know that doing more sooner rather than later is going to be cheaper in the long run for the economy. So on that point about doing, you know, transitioning, about, you know, starting small, I guess, for lots of businesses, they will probably be still scratching their heads about what that even means for them. Um, John, what, you know, what, where do companies start? Where do they go for information? What do they do when they're trying to make these decisions? I think the idea of starting small is, is the perfect place. Um, and at the moment, in our transition plan that we released, we released some targets around motor retail, obviously high emission sector, and our large corporate clients, also high emission sector. Um, and just to prove that uh, I do do some things with data, um, I think really interesting bit of analysis that we've done, albeit averages and quite a high level, um, is that 18% of our commercial revenue that, that we see in our business accounts for roughly 30% of, we estimate, our clients' emissions. But that is less than 2% of our clients. So we can engage with less than 2% of our clients and that would potentially tackle up to 30% of our commercial emissions. So talking of starting small, I think that's a really interesting place that we are starting to think about how can we focus and work with those clients um, to help bring them down and support their journey. They are great. Well, great and not so great statistics, aren't they, in terms of, of, of the impact? 2%, that's incredible. I mean, Anna, I'm sure you must get asked this all the time, whether it's, you know, from in a business perspective, you're being asked or just your mates wondering what to do in terms of, you know, making that move. What, what What's always your advice to where businesses can start on this? Well, I think it's going to depend on the business, their sector, where they're located and the type of business. But I think there are some things that everyone, households and businesses can think about, which is that the kind of easy wins are, are, are we using energy efficiently? Are we waste, you know, are there smart meters we can be using? Can we be switching off lights more? Um, does heating need to be on a certain setting? Um, I think for businesses, you know, We've had this long-standing productivity challenge in the UK. Part of that is, particularly in smaller companies, increasing digitization. I think there are lots of synergies between digitization, better understanding your business, and also thinking more about resource efficiency. How are you using your energy? Can you use that data to reduce your energy use and improve your operations in a sustainable way? I think working practices, that's another kind of opportunity um, we know now there's really good evidence from my colleague Nick Bloom at Stanford University on working from home. Actually, hybrid, which is kind of the new normal for many, doesn't actually have an impact on productivity. But what it does do is it really increases staff well-being and therefore reduces kind of your staff turnover. So it's actually good for profitability because you'll have to spend less kind of hiring or um, all of that. So on that note, if we can have flexible working practices and reduce travel, business travel or commuting, that's another way to quite easily reduce emissions while also not harming your productivity. So I think it's about looking at those specific things. Obviously, in high emissions sectors, it's going to be about changing production processes. It might be more costly, but then it is a cost which is going to make your production process more resilient into the future. It's a, it's a change that needs to be made. The question is, at what point is it made? 
Yeah, this this reminds me of one of my first jobs was um, I worked for Black & Decker, a, a factory up in the northeast. I was doing an apprenticeship and I was trained in lean production. And one of the jobs I had to do was try and get one of our suppliers to make um, these fans that they made for one of our products faster because they were making them 24 seven and still weren't meeting demand so I was sent in to do all this kind of it's called six sigma this way of working and had to just change in tiny little variables to see if we could make them faster but in the same quality control anyway after a very long laborious process it worked and it met we managed to make enough of these fans and it also meant the factory could close at weekends which so which was really fascinating. So that suddenly, isn't it? That it just made me think of it exactly as you were explaining it, and it's that thing, isn't it? That was just me spending ages doing small variables on the machines in the in the building, but small things can add up to a big difference in the end, both from a cost perspective and, as you say, the the environmental impact on all of this. Um, Joe, sorry. Just to just to add that, I think that's exactly right, and that's what we do through life cycle analyses, for example, within um, environmental management. That's exactly how we find the waste that can be cut out, um, which makes everything more efficient. Um, but one of the sort of freest things, but sometimes hardest things that businesses can do is to think about the culture and developing a mindset around um, sustainability and reaching net zero. And one of the things we talk to businesses often about is sort of creating this culture of curiosity um, and involving employees in, in that movement to net zero. So finding all these little ways that can help people be more efficient and make a positive impact on the environment. Yeah. And and I, I guess as well, that's that's taking ideas from everyone in the, the business, isn't it? It's not just top down. It's what are the people on whatever, you know, the shop floor or whatever the equivalent is in your business. It's it's what can they tell you about how you can do things better, which is obviously must be great for just employee engagement as well. Um, just in terms of what, what we you want people to take away from all of this, then there'll be lots of brokers listening to this. What can they do, Anna, do you think, in terms of, you know, talking to clients and then in their own lives around helping us achieve net zero? Yeah, well, of course, I think that the whole working from home debate that only really relates to certain sectors of the economy where it's feasible. I think for those businesses, it will be more about their buildings, their production processes, the products, their supply chains. Um, Again, some changes might be more costly, others might be easier to do. It's just that maybe given the various crises we've been in, maybe managers haven't had time to focus on those changes and understand exactly where the payoff would be greatest, both in terms of emission reduction, but also, as Joe said, the areas where there could also be cost savings from some of these things. Yeah. John, what are your thoughts? I completely agree with Anna that, that education is is key to, to get people on board here. I guess I'd have have two two takeaways, especially for our brokers. Um, number one is that they probably need to be prepared that customers in those higher emission sectors will have less insurance choice. Um, and number two is that without getting into the technicalities of the different ways of measuring emissions and the different scopes, clients might start choosing their brokers on their ESG credentials. Just as we see people coming into our business now, they ask us about our ESG credentials and what we're doing. I think brokers will start seeing that in their own workforce, but also from their own clients, because ultimately they are within their client supply chain. And in the grand scheme of things, the broker will be contributing to their emissions as well. So those two points, I think, are, are worthwhile to take away. Yeah, 
really good summary there. Well, thank you very much to all of our guests. On that, uh, John Dudeney, Dr. Anna Valero and Joe Goddard. Please do subscribe to the series through your podcast app and then you will never miss an episode. Also, if you'd like to leave us a review, that would be rather lovely too. Um, thanks so much for listening. That's it from me, Steph McGovern and Allianz Insurance. Goodbye. Goodbye.